If you want to grab a Bible or one of these little John books, reading this morning's in John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it, the, the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. It's the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Man, been a while. I feel like welcome back. Welcome back, yes. It's been a while. Um, well, as you can see this morning, we are in uh, John 2. We are going to be discussing the wedding at Cana. And uh, so th this particular story has uh, so, so much depth. So much depth. Uh, just in the first sentence alone, we were talking about that this is this happened like on the third day, right? And it's not something that we're going to unpack this morning, but uh, stay tuned. We're going to talk about that more actually next week. But just for the fact that it's the third day um, and the significance of the fact that this is actually his first son. This is how Jesus kind of introduces his ministry. This is how he kind of kicks it off, so to speak. And I think that there is significance to that as well. And uh, that's what we're going to kind of talk about this morning a little bit. And uh, so whenever someone were to like launch kind of like what they're about, so to speak, I mean, that's kind of what Jesus is doing here, right? He's, he's kicking things off. He's, in lack of a better term, kind of saying like, this is what I'm about. This, this is what I do. This is, this is my mission. This is my purpose. Um, a, a word that we may use in, in modern days, and I don't know, man, this makes you a little uneasy, but you've heard, you've heard the term, uh, what is your personal brand? Like, have you ever kind of heard people say, like, what's your personal brand? What's, what's your thing? Right, and uh, a lot of people have different ways that they would you know, kind of talk about that, but a lot of ways that's what Jesus is kind of doing here. And when you, when you think about the word uh, brand, like what is a brand? Uh, I'm, I'm going to dive into this a little bit just because you know this is this is my job, this is my career, you know. So that's kind of how my brain works. Is what is a brand? And when when you think of a brand, what's the first thing you think of? Oscar Mayer. Oscar Mayer, okay. Uh, well, just even more higher level than that, right? You think of a logo, right? That's like the first thing you kind of think of when you start talking about a brand, right? It's like the, the, this logo or this symbol or whatever is something. It's like it's how this company would introduce themselves to you, all right? Now, companies spend so much time, so much money, so much research in building these little pictures, so to speak. Um, and there's a reason behind it and everything, and I actually gathered uh, some of them, and uh, through the grace of God, we were able to actually get these to work this morning. This was a whole thing. Uh, ask me about it later. So, okay, so this, this is one logo here, okay? It's the Tour de France. 
And th this is a great example of how people were trying to put like hidden meaning into things. Okay, does everyone see the hidden picture in this? Yeah. Or what is it? The guy in the bicycle. Isn't that cool? Okay. Do you see the second one? Aha! <laughs> All right. It, it's it's really it, it's not that great. But anyways, uh, so the orange or the yellow circle. Okay, that's significant because when you win the Tour de France, what do you get? The yellow, the yellow, yellow jacket. You get a yellow jacket. Yeah, that's it. That's why they chose yellow. Uh, yeah, it's like it's not that great, but there it is. That's what they. But it's significant, right? Yeah, there was purpose. There was thought. It was thought through. What, what do they want you to think about that kind of idea? Right. Let's go to the next one real quick. I told myself I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on this, but I find this kind of stuff fun. So, all right, everyone knows this one. Dom knows. Okay. Uh, what, what's the obvious one? It's, it's, it's a dominant, right? It's like, oh, good job, very creative, right? Okay, um, so, but whenever you look at it, it's also supposed to look like a pizza box. Oh. Yeah, that's the other thing. Does anyone know what the three dots stand for? <laughs> it stands for pizza. Oh, okay, yeah, sure, it stands for pizza. No, those are the first to represent whenever Domino's opened, they opened with three locations. Wow. Yeah, see? So they, they thought that through. Okay, let's go next one real quick. All right. Does anyone see the uh, hidden picture of this one? There's what? There's a Hershey between the K and the I. Yeah, it's turned on the sides. Everyone see that? Uh, <laughs> oh, it's so fun to see right go, Oh, I missed that. You know how long I've looked at Hershey kisses? <laughs> I've never seen that. Um, uh, yeah, this is, this is a fun one because I think it's a lot. Good job. Good job. All right, let's go to the next one. Does anyone know that that's the reason why Toyota's logo looks like that? <laughs> it has every letter in it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, per personally, I, I, I think the, the Y and the T is kind of a stretch, but, but sure. Okay, yeah, it's there, you know. Um, I think that's the last one, right? Uh, okay, yeah, they're saying that's the last, please, that's the last one. Don't show me another look. Uh, oh, there's one. Uh, yeah, even, even ours, right? I'm sure Tisha can go up here and give a lecture on why she chose to put a tree. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure it had something more to do than just like, well, you know, we got trees. But let's put a tree in our logo. I'm sure it was more thought through than that, you know. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, right. But, okay, I, I told myself I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on that. Okay. Why, why do companies spend so much time in making these little pictures meaningful? Okay, I, I think that's an important question, okay? It, it's that they spend so much time to make sure that when you see this, it evokes some kind of response or some kind, even if it's something like, oh, I see the hidden picture, how cool is that? They, they, they want you to think they're witty, they want, whatever that is, okay? But the brand is also more than just a little symbol, all right, or a little logo, okay? It, it's the whole experience that you would have with the company. You better bet when you walk into Walmart, they thought through every step of that story, okay? Everything from how the displays are put up, where the lights are, the, the reason why there's someone at the, you know, some uh, old person standing at the front door saying, hi, welcome to Walmart, right? Because they want you to remember that, oh, the first thing I saw whenever I was at Walmart was a friendly face, okay? And, and that's everything from a store to even like a website, right? Ask David about this. Um, you know, if you go up to a website, a homepage is built to give you a user experience, right? There's careers around user experience. Because people are thinking through this kind of stuff because it matters, okay? 
A brand is what people think of you when you're not in the room. Okay? Whenever, whenever you are not around and people say, hey, do you know, do you know Jerry? Oh, I know her. She's good at blah, blah, blah. Right? Or whatever. Whenever you're not in the room, that's what people think of you. It's their first impression of you. Okay? And, and this goes even so far as to talk about like uh, people who run for political office. Like, why do you think they have uh, what's called their uh, campaign launch parties? Okay? Like, you already know what's getting ready to happen. If they're doing a campaign launch party, they're obviously going to be running for office, right? And then whenever you, you know, they, they film some of these, sometimes, right, you know, especially people who are running for president, right? And they have, they'll, they'll invite all these people into this big room, and everyone will have, like, T-shirts and signs and the big finger things and all that saying, like, you know, uh, you know Keith for president or whatever, right? It's like, well, obviously they pre-made all of this stuff to give it a certain look, a certain feel, so that way when you walk in there and you're seeing this on the screen, and the first thing this person says goes, when I'm president, I'm going to lower taxes and give everyone a Ferrari, right? So you immediately look at this and you connect that. And it's all part of the experience. It's all part of that brand. Right? Again, I told myself I was going to spend a lot of time on this, so I gotta get going. But <laughs> so whenever you are establishing yourself, when you want to have that first impression, it's meaningful and it matters. So it begs the question: why did Jesus choose to make this his first sign? Why is this significant? And you better believe it's more important and more intentional than simply his mom talking to him. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly where he was. And there's a reason why he chose his first sign or miracle to turn water into wine. There's a reason why he chose to use purification jars. There's a reason why he chose servants to do it. There's so much here. But we're going to try to focus on two major things, because there, there's been so many people throughout all of Christian history that has tried to write books and uh, you know do TV shows and all these other things, present sermons, all this, give messages about like what is Jesus about? What is his thing? What's the heart of his ministry? Why is he here? Right? So many people have tried to unpack this, and I, I think that even though I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think Jesus tried to simplify it as best as he could. And he did it just simply in Luke 19.10 when he said, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why. And he tried to simplify that for us. So if that was in, in, his, in his ability to say, This is why I'm here. This is what I'm about. If that's what he says about himself, then why is this his first sign? So we're going to unpack this scene a little bit in Luke 2. And we're going to talk about two major things. What did Jesus come to do? And how did he do it? What did he come to do? And how did he do that? So we're basically just going to talk about all of Jesus' ministry in the next 20 minutes. That's it. No big deal. Right? Okay? Be no big deal. So, in, in John 2, uh, if you want to go ahead and turn back into there, we'll, uh, we're just going to kind of like, we kind of read through the scene just a little bit here. Okay? Uh, and it opens up, it's, we're at a wedding feast, and again, we're at this third day. Um, again, there's significance to that, but we're not going to unpack that this morning. Okay? And it's a wedding feast. Now, 
First and foremost, a wedding feast. The best thing that we can kind of ascribe that to modern day, it would be the wedding reception. Right? Now, how many people on the church have been to a wedding reception? Right? How long did that wedding reception last? A few hours? Right? And, and depending on who you were there with, it was either, you know, a all-out party, or it was like tea and biscuits. Right? I mean, depending on how it was. It, it was, but every person's kind of different on how that goes, you know. But usually it only lasts a few hours. And this particular time, it wasn't several hours. It was like five days. <laughs> of just continuous feasting and partying. That's what it was. It was a party, okay? And oh, maybe it makes you a little uncomfortable to realize that you know, Jesus went to a party, but the Bible is forcing me to acknowledge that Jesus went to a party. That, that's what that was. So, <laughs> uh, so it, was a, it was a party, right? And uh, in, in this wedding feast, it was understood that through the entire time, all five days, the host would provide everything needed to make the party great. He even hires a person specific to make sure it's great, the master of the feast. We'll get to him a little bit later, right? But the entire point is to make the celebration last. Now, this is an important event, probably the most important event in your entire life in this particular era, okay? And so this is, this is more than just a, a, a small inconvenience when the wine runs out. When the wine runs out, everyone is going to just freak out. Because people are gathered there for one reason, to celebrate. They're there to celebrate. And, and for all intents and purposes, that's what the wine represents. It represents celebration, it represents joy, it represents fun. And in essence, that's what has ran out. So this would not have been just like a small inconvenience or something like that. This would have followed this family for the rest of their lives. It would have completely shamed them. Now, we have very little perspective of this. Uh, I mean, the most, like I said, would be a minor inconvenience for us. Like, if you ever went to a birthday party and you're all gathered around the table, you know, and everyone's wearing the big pointy hats, and the six-year-olds are sitting there just waiting for this cake to come out with all the candles on it, and they come out, and they have all these people, like, they have their forks, they got their plates, they're ready for this, and they come out, and they bring in out this, like, little six-inch cake. Right? And everyone's like, oh, okay. I guess I don't get any. Right? Or, or even worse, you're one of those kind of people that you have a birthday party and you do cake, but you don't do ice cream? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, so, like, you're not supplying enough for the party, right? Ever, you've been here, right? You, you go to a party and you show up and there's like, you can just already tell, you can look at the table and there's just not enough for everybody. Like, you, you see it, right? And you, you, maybe you don't feel uncomfortable, but you acknowledge that, okay, did you just not know how many people were going to show up? Were you, were you just not prepared? Like, you're, you're questioning this. So and th this is probably the max that we could probably understand, because then, what we're, like I said, we're minorly, minorly inconvenienced, and then we leave and we forget about it. Whereas this would have followed them the rest of your life, the rest of their life. And that's why this is a big deal. This isn't just a, oh, what's wrong with you? It's, they are shamed. They're kicked out of the campfire. They are kicked out of community. They're kicked out because of this. And the reason why we need to put so much stress, I guess you could say, on the fact of like how big of a problem this was, 
is because it points to how big of a rescue he is. It points to how big of a deal Jesus' miracle is. So if we're not willing to acknowledge how big of a problem it is, then we're going to have a hard time acknowledging how big of a rescue it is. And how true of that is it with just our lives in general? When we're not willing to acknowledge how big our sin is, we're not willing to acknowledge how much we need rescue, then all of a sudden our need for our Savior, our need for our rescue, also diminishes. We don't feel like we need Jesus. We don't feel like we need his blood. We don't feel like we need his rescue. Because we're just mindfully inconvenienced. But that's not what this is. The other reason why he chose it during this party is this is just not something that you make up. He even says it at the very end. And the disciples did what? Believed. Because of this, the disciples believed. This is a signifier. It's a strategic manifestation of glory so that we might believe. Because let's just take an inventory of the scene for just a second here. No one is dying, right? There are no lepers. There are no you know, women bleeding. There's no uh, cripples. There's, no, there's nothing like that. There's no starving children. There's, there's nothing that would signify this major catastrophe that he would need to come in and fix. It's a social blunder, right? So he comes in and he changes water into wine. Because no one would make up that story. If you're trying to present Jesus as this, this hero, right? You're trying to, to basically persuade everyone around you that he is this super being, you would have him part the waters. Right? You would have him do this major thing, not rescue a couple teenagers from egg on their face. It was there so that they might believe. So let's go back to our two questions just for a second. What did Jesus come to do, and how does he do it? So, first thing is, Jesus came to save and to bring joy. Because ultimately that's what this wine is going to represent. It's going to represent two different things. And the first that we're going to talk about is, is joy. That's what it represents. The, the thing that this, this joyful event battles against is, is the shame of this family. Right? And th this shame is... Um, it's, it's a really interesting emotion because it can be disguised and sometimes it's hard for us to even acknowledge that that's like our motivator necessarily. Uh, we, it, it can uh, cause us to isolate, it can cause us to shy away from things, all this, and we don't even realize that that's what it is, that it is actually shame that's causing us to do that. Um, so, but even though, so shame is not necessarily specifically mentioned in the story, it's more of something that is prevented that we never get to because of what Jesus does, right? He rescues them from a lifetime of shame, so they never, they never actually get there, right? Um, but I think it's important for us to recognize that that's, that's what's happened here. 
He has rescued them from that. So let's think about this. In verse 8, the wine was drawn out and taken to the master of the feast. Now, the term master of the feast is actually kind of a weird grouping of words that we don't have a direct translation for. Uh, but the closest thing would be, um, let's see, like party planner or MC, master of ceremonies, like that. Uh, but there, there's a few extra layers there that would have happened uh, back in this time. But that's kind of the closest that we could get, right? So the, the wine is drawn out, the, the better wine, the good wine, the best wine, right, as is described in this passage, is drawn out, taken to the master of the feast, and he, he drinks it right, and he proclaims that, wow, man, usually people bring out the bad stuff, but you brought out the best. Like, this is the greatest stuff ever, right? So we need to understand, if, if wine is truly representing joy, and it's the, well, the reason why we have that joy is because we are rescued from shame, right? If that's what all of this is, the wine that was there before, even though it was good, it wasn't great, Everything that we do for ourselves, all the sacrifices that have been in the past have been good, but not complete. See, Jesus comes and brings a wine that is better, it is best, it is complete. There is nothing better. This wine that comes is a joy that is everlasting, that can't be taken away from us. This is a joy that is so deep that it isn't just in this temporary physical life that we're in now, but is meant to last for all eternity. Because see, eventually we are all going to party like time has no meaning. That's what's going to happen. And that's what Jesus is trying to point us to. Whenever he brings that wine out and takes it to the master of the feast, see, it was master of the feast, it was his job to make sure the party went off without a hitch and was great. And in a lot of ways, this is Jesus bringing in this fresh wine, the best wine, the better wine, saying, no, I'm the master of the feast. I'm Lord of the harvest. I'm the one that brings everything good and joyful in abundance, more than you ever could. Any wine before me, anything before me, is empty. I thought. I'm a church. That's what Jesus is saying here. He goes, your joy has to come from me. Or it'll just run out. We read this even in the Old Testament. We're going to turn to Isaiah 25, and we'll read verses 6 through 9 real quick. Talking about a wine that runs and flows forever. And I, I, I understand that sometimes people get a little uneasy when we start talking about wines and something that just like, take a step back from that and just talk, we're talking about simply the symbolism that is behind this, okay? Wine is this, is this joy that lasts forever. This is a community that lasts forever. We commune together forever. Okay, and in Isaiah 25, 6-9, we kind of talk about this party at the end of time. Okay, and that, that's what it is, right? On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast well, of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's read this again in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. We get kind of a similar image. Okay? So we go over here, all the way to the back. All right? Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So many marriage feast things. All right, but we're just going to keep our eyes on them, okay? Um, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is our hope. This, this is what we get to look forward to. And this is why Jesus chooses this to like basically launch his brand. It's like, I am here to bring joy, because joy is what we're all going to be experiencing together at the end of time. This is what's important to me, is that we are together, enjoying one another's company, communing together, feasting together. He goes, the wine doesn't have to run out. The party gets to keep going. This is our hope. This is what we get to stand on. At um, the end of Return of the King, yeah, Lord of the Rings reference. There we go. End uh, of Return of the King. Uh, so this actually didn't make it into the movie, and I don't know why. Um, or maybe it's in some extended version that I've never seen. Um, I don't know, David can correct me later. Um, but at, at the end, Sam, Samwise Gamgee wakes up and sees Gandalf. And this is the first time he sees Gandalf since The Fellowship of the Ring, which was several books ago. So this entire time, he thinks Gandalf's dead. This whole time. And he wakes up, and he looks at Gandalf, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. Then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And someday, Jesus will return. Someday, everything sad will come untrue. Yes. Someday, in eternity, all of human suffering that we've experienced throughout all of history, that this joy that we get to experience at this, at this feast in Isaiah 25 and Revelation 19, that this, this community that we get to be a part of, not, not just then, but also now, it, it's also now, okay? All of that is going to make all of human suffering look like a couple of bad nights. That's how big this is. That's how important this is. Someday Jesus makes all sad things untrue and brings nothing but happiness and joy. Because he is the Lord of the feast. So how does he do it? How does he do this? Well, to understand that, we get to go back to the wedding. 
We're going to read John 2, verses 6 through 7. <clears throat> now there were six stone jars, water jars, there for the Jewish, Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So, in order to use, um, hold on, let's back up a bit. So, Jewish rites of purification. Okay, that is very, very Old Testament law, and we won't fully unpack that right now. But the thing you have to realize is that in order to understand that you have to go through a rite of purification, you have to understand that there's a reason why you were purified. Okay? And even though um, sometimes these rites and rituals that the Jewish uh, people would have went through uh, became hollow after a while because it just became uh, more of a habit rather than just realizing what I need, why I need to do this thing, um, we want to make sure that we keep the value and understanding we need purified. That we can't enter the Holy of Holies, that we can't stand before a holy God in the present form of sin. That that has to be removed. That that has to be purified from us. So, therefore, they had this rite of purification, and they had to use these stone jars. And the reason why um, it's important that John says that these were stone water jars for purification, okay, is when they went back to the back of this room, right, and they were trying to find stone, but Jesus says, use those. Stone jars would have been very apparent what they were, okay? They don't, they're not ceramic, they're not clay, they're not just some random bucket. You look at it, they are carved from stone. Like, so the servants, everyone around be like, um, you, you know what those are, Jesus? Like, those, those are very, have a very specific use. Like, why are you using those? Like, can we just, like, there's these over here, let's just, like, those are very specific, you know? And it would be very apparent what those are for. And that's why, you know, whenever John describes it, he says they're stone water jars, okay? Now, they were filled with water. <clears throat> and changed. Changed into wine. What were the two sayings of the wine? Joy and blood. It doesn't matter how many rites, how many rituals, how many times you bathe yourself with some symbolic holy water, how many times you feel like that <clears throat> I've done this enough, I have you know participated in this church event enough, that I've done any of this other stuff enough. You are never enough. Yes. What you do is never enough. Your purification only comes from the blood of Christ. That's it. That's all we got. That's our best shot. And when Jesus brings this water and changes it as being not only master of the feast, but master of the universe, showing that he is master over creation, third day, um, all of that, 
He's showing that this wine is my blood. And this is how you're purified. Through me. I do it. Your joy only comes through my sacrifice. Because at the end of the day, you can't have sacrifice, or you can't have forgiveness without suffering. Some form of suffering. For example, if you are in a car accident, and could just be a little fender bender, and they come up, ram your car, you get out, and he goes, oh, here, let me pick that. And you say, no, 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 it's okay. There's still suffering there, even though you've forgiven this person. Because now you, you have to take on that payment. You have to take on the debt of repairing your car. Right? And then the flip of that was, if the person had to pay for it in order to be forgiven by you, like then they're paying for payment, right? So like no matter what, there's some form of suffering when it comes through forgiveness. And Jesus is saying, that it is my blood that is required for forgiveness. So if you would understand that, or you don't understand, sorry, that it is Jesus' blood that is required, it is Jesus that makes you pure, it is Jesus that washes your sins, everything like that. Maybe you don't understand that because it makes you uneasy to think about uh, sin in general. Maybe you are uneasy about it because you don't like being told that you're, you're bad. It's like, or maybe you're uneasy about it because it's like, I don't really feel like I am that bad. You understand that maybe Jesus had to die maybe for other people, but I'm, I'm not that bad. I don't, I don't need that. Let me ask you this. Why do you feel the need to work so hard? Why, why do you feel the need to uh, put on makeup in the morning? To make sure that your clothes are pressed just right? Why do you feel the need to accomplish so much? Why, why do you feel the need to um, put your value in how much money you make? Why do you feel the need to fill a hole inside of you that maybe you don't even realize is there? Why do you feel like less of a person when you make a mistake? Why do you feel ashamed to exist? The right diet can't make you skinny. The right amount of makeup can't make you pretty enough. To make you feel whole. To make you feel good enough. Jesus gives you a new identity. He gives you a new identity. And it's one that makes you feel complete and whole. But you have to accept that you need him. You have to accept that you need to be purified. 
he happily does that. So as we come to a close, I'll ask Nathan to come back up. And just a couple more thoughts here. If Jesus came to save and bring joy, and he does that by purifying us and washing our sins away with his sacrifice, and all we have to do is believe. What if you've done all? The next step is to live in it. No one likes a grumpy Christian. But you live in it. You live in that joy, the joy that is in the here and now and points to an eternity. All throughout the Bible, you hear about the different feasts. You have the Feast of Pentecost, Passover, right? And then you get uh, uh, into the New Testament, you see Jesus, he just, he's always looking for his next table, right? He's always looking for that next person to eat dinner with. You live in the joy of the kingdom by being a kingdom, by being with one another. Everyone comes together whenever, you know, in Acts 2, right? Everyone comes together and they form this community that everyone wants to be a part of. So let me just ask, how are we that community that someone wants to be a part of? And maybe it is just something as simple as we table together. We eat together. We hang out. We be that family that joyfully comes together in community. We live in it. We live in the expected joy that is to come in the present. So as Nathan starts to play, pray here, here play, you can pray if you want, but uh, starts to play, uh, just if you need help understanding what it means to be purified, if you need help reconciling that, yeah, you know, I, I have sinned and I understand that I need Christ, come talk to us. I'll be up here. Uh, we can have a couple other shepherds up here that would be more than welcome to pray with you. And if you're, maybe you're on the other side of that and you're starting to think, maybe what you need to do is say, you know, we're coming into a summer and I just need to really invite people over for a barbecue. Maybe that's your simple application, and that's great. Do that. Live in the joy.